Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. It was a choppy response to the consumer price index as well as the retail sales number. Uh, here to kind of have us shape our idea of how to view these two numbers is Peter Shear, head of macro strategy at Academy Securities based in Connecticut. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. So uh, the initial response was to sell stocks, sell bonds, gold, who knows, People just wringing their hands. What did you make of this? I mean, was this a good report uh, given the CPI accelerating fast uh, more than people expected? Or was it a bad report given the retail sales coming in in an underwhelming way? I think it is a bad report. Um, I think this retail sales is very problematic. And when I look back at some of the recent data we had, I think it was the Richmond Fed, the New York Fed, a lot of the regional Feds have missed on their reports. I look at the City Economic Surprise Index, that's been turning down. So the one thing that's helped this market through all this volatility is this real belief that the fundamentals are okay. I'm wondering if this is going to call some of that into question. So, Pete, what's the trade? I think you continue to sell risk. We bounced off that low on Friday. We have an opportunity to take off some risk. I think you want to be careful here. It's still very volatile. It's still very uncertain what's going on. And if there is anything that starts to show weakness in the economy or some of the trade negotiations start turning bad, I think there's risk to more downside and going back to those lows. Okay, so what risk do you sell? Do you sell riskier credit in the U.S.? Do you sell emerging markets? Do you sell stocks? I think you sell a little bit of stocks here. I think emerging markets. I would not be selling high yield here, although people are selling that again today, only because I think that has become a very crowded short position. For some reason, people in the credit markets hate high yield. If you're a macro player, you hate high yield. Everyone's kind of fixated on high yield as a short, and it's very costly to short that right now. So I think there's better opportunities. So I'd be probably shorting some EM and more likely even some U.S. equities here. So with emerging markets, how should people be trying to either go short uh, emerging markets or should they just sell? Because I was looking this morning at uh, spreads, extra yield over benchmarks on uh, high yield bonds in the U.S. versus high yield bonds in emerging markets. And right now you're getting no premium whatsoever for going into emerging markets high yield bonds over U.S. high yield bonds. How do people play that? I think you could take a look at something like EMB, which is a emerging market bond ETF. It's not going to quite capture what you're looking at there, but I think close enough. And I think that's what people are going to start doing is they're going to look at high yield and say, wow, my high yield bonds are down three points or four points and my EM bonds are only down one point. Maybe I should sell those. So I think that is a relative value transformation that tends to occur. So, Peter, why are you not fixated on the consumer price index? It's been so volatile. They have told us, you know, time and time again to focus on PC anyways. It's one number. And if anything, if I really wanted to fixate on this, you'd start getting nervous that we're seeing some signs of stagflation, right? We're finally creating inflation without the underlying growth maybe there that needs to be. Again, it's premature to look at it like that, but I think we're going to start testing this whole economic fundamental is great theory in the next week or so in terms of data. So what does this do for the Fed? 
I mean, right now the market's pricing in a 100% chance of a March rate hike. Does this mean that they have more ammunition to increase rates faster because of some inflationary pressure? Or does that mean that they're going to hold back because there's sort of a questionable dynamic underlying the growth story? Yeah, my view is that they will hike in March. I think that's still on the table, and, you know, the CPI lets them do that. But I think they will give us some cautionary tales that they want to watch what's going on with the consumer. You know, this is now not just this month's number was bad, but they revised down last month. You've seen an uptick in credit card delinquencies. You've also seen all these bizarre stories, to me in mind, of people not being allowed to buy Bitcoin on their credit cards, which calls into question who was buying Bitcoin on credit cards. So I think they're going to be cautious and say, hey, we've risen rates a lot. Let's see what this does to the consumer. Pete, what about stagflation? What would have to happen for you to make that a headline for you? I think we need to really believe that inflation is here. And I just question that. And we're starting to see, you know, things like oil have rolled over a little bit. So a lot of the inflationary pressures that were there, I think will go down. We will see maybe there are going to be all these wage hikes related to tax reform, and that could help and really drive some pressure. But right now, we're just seeing more one-time bonuses rather than big wage increases. And there's no inflation number that would get you to change your mind, let's say? Well, I think if this continues and is persistent, I would become concerned then that we've really created inflation. And hopefully if we've created that, these bad retail sales numbers will be an anomaly. So I guess I'm looking for probably another month or so that starts confirming or at least the sneaking suspicion that inflation has increased while growth is slowing. All right. Well, we're going to check in with you then, of course. Peter Cheer is the head of macro strategy at Academy Securities. He's based in Connecticut, giving us, this, giving us his thoughts about uh, inflation, but also really sparing uh, uh, no effort when he looks at those retail sales numbers. The future of infrastructure in the United States calls for experts to give us their thoughts, advice, and their uh, experience. Walter Kempsey is the economist and chief strategist for U.S. Ports, Airports, and Global Infrastructure Group of JAL. That's Jones Lang LaSalle, and they're based in Chicago. Walter, thank you very much for being here. Maybe just tell people a little bit about your background and that you're currently advising the U.S. Department of Commerce, their advisory committee on on supply chain competitiveness, as well as the Department of Transportation's task force on infrastructure valuation. Maybe just give us a little bit of a hint of your background and how you're applying that to the president's uh, effort to improve the infrastructure quality in the United States. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm a former investment banker who got pulled into a marine engineering firm, Moffitt & Nickel. Uh, to help the uh, financial community as they were trying to initially invest in infrastructure about 12, 15 years ago. Uh, that role eventually morphed into planning the infrastructure, and I've worked with a number of port authorities around the country in strategic development plans, making sure they had the capacity in advance of the freight coming in. And as a result of that work, um, I was asked to join the Department of Commerce uh, Advisory Committee on Supply Chain Competitiveness, which is comprised of uh, port authorities, railroads, uh, big importers and big exporters, as well as a few uh, you know, uh, advisory experts like myself. 
So, Walter, since you talk with U.S. ports and airports and other infrastructure uh, groups, what's their outlook on how much money is going to get unleashed by some sort of infrastructure spending program? And what can we glean from the budget that President Trump uh, put out earlier this week that most people said was dead on arrival? Is there anything, any details that we can hang on to? Okay. I mean, just if you're just looking at the port sector on the water side of the ports, uh, the American Association Port Authorities uh, estimates about $66 billion, you know, to raise bridges, to dredge channels, to strengthen key walls and buy bigger equipment to handle the bigger ships. The uh, What they don't have an estimate for is on the land side, because, uh, you know, as, as the volumes have grown in this country, the economy, the population, the uh, the number of, of paved miles have not kept pace. And in, in, in the major port cities, uh, we see a lot of congestion. Uh, such as in Los Angeles, Long Beach, as well as New York. Uh, you, you can add other cities to that, but uh, that's the part where the estimated cost doesn't exist. But I would put that number at twice what we need for the uh, for the water side. Um, in terms of the plan itself, I think people need to understand that this is not supposed to be an Eisenhower interstate program. We've already built our interstate. We've built the core infrastructure. But this is supposed to be a means to repair and upgrade all of our infrastructure, including transportation, energy, and the water supply. And and ever since the Eisenhower era, responsibility has shifted to states and local governments, you know, to not only direct the infrastructure investments, but also as a means to reduce the incentives to use free federal money. And I say free in quotes, but free federal money to generate jobs building roads to nowhere. So the whole idea here is to target about $200 billion as seed capital, which along with other actions such as a shot clock on on permit approval time will make it a lot easier for private capital to invest. Um, The other part of the program also includes uh, loosening the uh, federal loan programs such as TIFIA, WIFIA, RIF, and the other, you know, alphabet soup of of programs that exist that currently, um, you know, are structured to help somebody you know, do the upfront capital expenditures, but be able to wait a number of years before generating the revenue necessary for debt repayment. The problem with these programs is they've been extremely stingy and loans generally don't get approved. So there is an effort to loosen that uh, in, in order to unleash the federal support that's available already. Walter, is there a project that you could use as a showcase, and I mean you as collectively, the industry, that could be used as a showcase in order to demonstrate both to politicians and to the electorate that these programs can work that then would foster even greater incentive and desire to accomplish these things? Because it seems as though we don't have a specific objective, and that makes it even more challenging. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, where one of the, the things that the program falls short on is to tie all of this, this effort into some kind of national economic objective. And, and the simplest one, and, and this relates to the efforts for tr- free trade agreement renegotiations, uh, is to uh, support exports. You know, most of our infrastructure investment in the last 20, 30 years has gone towards the uh, import side of, of the trade flows. And when you look at it, you know, volume-wise, the U.S. trade deficit is practically zero. But we import high-value-per-ton goods, and we export low-value-per-ton goods. 
also, on a dollar basis, we run a very large trade deficit, averaging half a trillion a year for the last, you know, five, ten years. So the, the money would naturally be attracted to where there is a high value per ton. There's more pricing power in there, and there's more return available. If we tied the uh, infrastructure program to something like you know, supporting exports, uh, then I think things would work a little bit better. And part of the problem is that as jobs have left the U.S., jobs in the export-oriented industries haven't taken up the, uh, the, the slack in the labor markets. So if we do renegotiate the trade agreements and open the markets to U.S. exports, we will need to invest in infrastructure to support that. So just to be really clear, what is that spending that needs to support exports? Yeah. Um, the, the first off, it would be on the Mississippi Waterway. Most of that was built in the 1930s, uh, you know, during the uh, the Great Depression. That infrastructure is now uh, 75 years or older. The Soybean Transportation Coalition has done a report, a couple of them now, and they've pointed out that roughly three-fourths of our Mississippi Waterway infrastructure is over 75 years of age. And the way it works with the dams and the locks is that they're built with a 50-year life cycle. And every 25 years, you inspect it and try to retrofit it a little bit and get another 25 years out of it. Uh, but when you hit 75 years, that's it. You're done. You need to replace it, just like we're doing with the bridges in New York, you know, perhaps a little late. But uh, that, that Mississippi waterway infrastructure, when it breaks down, when a lock breaks down, miles of barges back up on either side because they can't traverse the, the, the step in the river. Yeah. And uh, oftentimes we have to 3D print the part because it just doesn't exist anymore. Walter Kemsies, thank you so much for your insights. We'll have to have you back. Walter Kemsies, economist and chief strategist for U.S. Ports, Airports, and Glo- the Global Infrastructure Group at JLL Jones Lang LaSalle in Chicago, uh, joining us by phone. The shares of Marriott International, they're higher by a little bit more than 1% right now. The company will report results after the close of trading today based in Bethesda, Maryland, home to Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. And here to tell us about the company and more in the hospitality industry is Mike Belisario, equity analyst at Baird. Mike, what can you tell us about Marriott and the, I guess it's the year since they acquired the Starwood uh, brand. What are they going to post in terms of savings and asset sales. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I think you're going to hear a lot from Marriott that we heard from Hyatt, or from excuse me, from Hilton this morning. Uh, really strong fourth quarter guidance for 2018 that is pretty much in line with um, the results that they posted for full year 2017. I mean, specifically for Marriott, it's been you know, 15, 16 months since they've closed the transaction. Investors are really focused on the synergies. Uh, a lot of those have been realized. Asset sales here or there, that's important. A lot of the heavy lifting's been done. I think the thing people are really focused on is all the extra benefit that Marriott being bigger having more negotiating power can pass to its owners, especially in a tough operating environment like today. 
So, Mike, I'm wondering just about the tourism industry in general. We had heard reports given uh, some of the talk of the current presidential administration about uh, foreigners and immigrants and all of that, that it it would have a dampening effect on tourism. Did we see any of that from Hilton's results? We did, and we've seen that broadly in the data. Inbound international travel to the U.S. uh, was down a bit uh, in 2017. Uh, Hilton this morning thinks its inbound travel was down about 4%, uh, but that only makes up, call it, you know, 5-ish percent of their total business. You know, some of that is the uh, you know the political backlash. If if you're someone overseas and you might not want to come to the U.S. because you don't like what you're hearing, that's possible. Some of it is also the U.S. dollar. It just it was more expensive throughout 2017 to come to the U.S. And on the flip side, too, we don't talk about it enough, is the domestic traveler, the U.S. traveler, not going on vacation to Florida or Southern California, but because it's so cheap to go to Europe or Japan, for example, more U.S. citizens going abroad, too. So that's also an impact in the numbers that people don't talk a lot about. But, yes, there, there was an impact in 2017. We're still seeing it on the inbound international travel side. So of the big hospitality companies, which are most exposed to that trend of uh, domestic tourists from the U.S. going international and not as many inbound uh, tourists in the U.S.? Actually, the the biggest beneficiary kind of on a percentage basis would be Hyatt uh, because a larger percentage of, of their portfolio is overseas. Hilton, Marriott and Hyatt, Hilton is the most domestic focused. Um, the way to think about it, too, is wh- where do people come to the U.S.? They go to New York, they go to San Francisco, Los Angeles. So anyone that has urban market, gateway market exposure, if you're an owner of hotels in those markets, which a lot of the REITs are, those companies are also disproportionately impacted. But you know Marriott's brand, Hilton's brand in the U.S. overseas. If you can capture that same traveler that was maybe going to travel to the Marriott in Orlando, but they're going to the Marriott in Prague, that's kind of a win-win for Marriott in its eyes. So, is this mean that Mike that uh, expansion for these growth markets in Asia and Europe would that be key to achieving some of these profit targets? Absolutely. Roughly half of the big brands' pipelines is outside of the United States. We kind of zoom out. These big global hotel companies, they're very focused in the U.S. and in North America. There's a lot of white space still in Europe, in Asia Pacific, and even in Africa. So a lot of the growth is coming from there. You're just also working off a smaller base. But yeah, that's where they're focusing a lot of their efforts to kind of capture both of the inbound and outbound travel, but particularly from China. We've actually seen the dollar uh, weaken this year a little bit. Does that matter? Or in the scheme of things, is it such a minimal weakening that it's not going to change the trend that we saw in 2017? It matters. That actually came up on Hilton's conference call. It's hard to tell on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis. I think over rolling 12-month periods, it's important. And on the margin, it does cause people to either say, yes or no, I want to go to the U.S., or yes or no, I want to go to London instead of Japan, for example. And there's also a lag to booking. If you're a leisure traveler, you're more price sensitive, and you're sometimes booking three to six months out. So if there is a weakening or strengthening of the dollar, you're not necessarily going to see it now. It might not be until June or July or August, for example, when we actually see the impact of what happened to the dollar today. Mike Belisario, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Really interesting insights. Mike Belisario is Senior Equity Research Analyst at Baird, coming to us from Chicago. 
The New York Fed put out a report this week taking a look at consumer debt, and it showed that student loan uh, outstanding uh, have totaled $1.4 trillion, and delinquencies could be up to 22% if you take out instances of students who are not required to make payments because they're still in school, uh, still in school unemployed, or for other reasons. Joining us now is Marshall Steinbaum, Research Director and Fellow at the Roosevelt Institute in Washington, D.C. Marshall, thank you so much for joining us. This is a really important topic. I'm just wondering, you did a report looking at the macro economic implications of this rising pile of student debt. What what are the implications? I mean, they, they could be quite significant, considering that this is uh, now a $1.4 trillion pile of debt. The uh, effect on the macro economy of canceling all the outstanding student debt, and what we found is that it would have a uh, moderate stimulative effect on uh, overall output. I think the numbers uh, $86 billion to $100 billion a year approximately, given the two models that we used, um, that it would uh, reduce the unemployment rate and uh, increase uh, the, the total uh, rate of people being employed. And the main effect is because essentially the debt is burdening the balance sheets of, of households, especially young households. And if they didn't have to make those payments, they would spend the money on other things and that would increase aggregate demand. Where would the money come from in order to pay off this debt? That's a good question. Uh, currently, the federal government is the uh, lender for about 90% of the debt. And what we modeled is essentially them for, uh, canceling it. So just uh, writing it off. Uh, and then the other 10%, the federal government would assume making payments uh, to the private lenders on behalf of students. Um, so overall, both of those two things would increase the uh, federal deficit um, and, and the federal debt outstanding um, while relieving debt from individual households. And the whole uh, macroeconomic uh, uh, mechanism that's going on in the, in the forecast of the effects is that that transfer of the debt from households to the government is uh, macroeconomically beneficial. Okay, but if the government is going to be the one to foot the bill, doesn't that really mean that the taxpayer is the one to foot the bill? Well, we've been running up uh, debt and deficits for a long time now, um, and the tax share of total output is, I think, at its lowest ever, um, and or lowest in a very long time, and uh, low for the state of the business cycle where we currently are. Normally, you'd expect the federal government to be collecting the most in taxes when the economy is doing relatively well. Um, so uh, I think, you know, I, whether there's a tight connection between uh, the federal government assuming debt and collecting taxes to pay that debt, I think that's an open question in macroeconomics. I'm trying to figure out. So uh, your report found that there would be this modest stimulative effect if the student debt were canceled of up to $108 billion per year. Does that change over time? I mean, is it how do you quantify the economic effect of student debt on a generation of people who might be delaying home purchases or having children or taking jobs that uh, that are riskier but might have more potential? That's a great question, and we don't really do that in the paper uh, that is specifically look at questions of like homeownership or small business formation or what jobs do people take as a result of having debt. Um, the macroeconomic models that, that we use to make those sort of big statements about how large the, the economy would be don't really get into that level of detail, but I think it's crucially important to understand what effect student debt is actually having on the economy. 
Uh, it's certainly true that now we have essentially a whole generation of workers who had who felt that they had to take on some level of student debt to get access to the labor market, uh, much more so than was the case previously. And I think that given that the labor market has not been performing terribly well, that wages are stagnant, they feel that that debt is a burden rather than a uh, an opening to uh, to social mobility and to better jobs. Well, how much of this is an indictment, frankly, on what individuals are paying for. In other words, some of the schools uh, that aren't necessarily setting up students for jobs that are lucrative enough to make this debt seem relatively insignificant. I think the overall explanation for why we have a student debt crisis in this country has to do with things that aren't really about higher education, although certainly part of the story is is there. Um, I think what happened was that we had a theory that the labor market was suffering from a skills gap and that the solution to that skills gap was to uh, make sure that people had the education they needed for today's jobs and and ultimately because that education would end up paying for itself in the form of higher wages we got comfortable as a sort of policy priority of shifting the responsibility of paying for that education from uh, state governments in the form of support for public higher education to individuals using the federal student loan program and what we've found, I think, is that that diagnosis of a skills gap was not correct. So uh, people ended up paying for these uh, degrees that were supposed to be the route to higher earnings. And it turned out that that really wasn't why wages were stagnating. The issue is not a skills gap, but rather uh, trends in the economy that have to do with the power of employers and um, the ability of employers to essentially credentialize the labor market, so to demand a higher uh a level of credentials and a, thus a higher level of debt to go along with any given job. Who has financially benefited from these student loans? Uh, I, don't, I don't mean the students in, in trying to sort of connect it with a future employment, but who's benefited financially and why don't they then, if the government or someone decides that this is something that we should not be supporting, why not have them assume the burden of this financial problem? I mean, that's a very good question. Uh, I think so aside, you know, the federal government is the lender. So in a direct sense, they have benefited uh, financially. I mean, this is, I think, a policy that the federal government decided to undertake that they wanted more people to get degrees. And so they were willing to extend loans on what for the private sector would be considered pretty generous terms um, in exchange for having more people get higher education. I think beyond that, um, you have a lot of institutions that have benefited a great deal from what I would consider a credentialization spiral. So they're able to sell degrees to people who wouldn't previously have needed those degrees in order to get access to the jobs they want. Um, I think you know that that uh, I think people tend to uh, point to the for-profit higher education providers as being especially kind of culpable in that sense, but I think it doesn't just extend to them. Um, and then the other piece of this is that the federal government, you know, really doesn't manage this large loan portfolio by itself. It has uh, servicers. When the federal government took over uh, responsibility as a, as the lender that has stopped guaranteeing private loans and started becoming the, being the lender itself for newly originated loans, the financial institutions that had been the lenders before became servicers, and then there there are some other um, bodies that that service these loans, and they have an incentive to essentially extend payment as long as possible, um, and not necessarily to uh, inform borrowers what their best options are about how to, for instance, uh, 
avail right. themselves so, of public service loan forgiveness and other other income based repayment. So so it's in other words almost like a credit card uh, situation where you know you uh, sort of demonize the people for getting into debt, but you encourage them to be able to take out more debt by offering them all kinds of incentives to do so. Yeah, and I think that is an apt point because we have this sort of uh, glow of higher education associated with student loans, and that's let uh, people get – financial institutions and other stakeholders get away with um, uh, tactics that I think there has been greater scrutiny of when the, uh, the when the question is credit card loans or home mortgages. I mean, we had sort of the, the scrutiny that arose in the financial crisis to other forms of uh, – other parts of the credit market that I think uh, student debt has largely uh, avoided. So which age group is most burdened by this $1.4 trillion? Well, it's certainly uh, younger workers are most burdened by it. Um, uh, you can see the enormous uh, skyrocketing percentage of w- workers in the like 25 to 40 uh, age cohort that have student loans uh, relative to what that cohort would have had in, in earlier eras. Um, or I should say what that age group would have had in earlier eras. I should also say that a lot of families go into intergenerational debt. Um, there are you know, federal programs that in- explicitly encourage that, and then I think it's just natural that um, parents and grandparents and, and other uh, family members want to contribute to their children um, getting educated and getting access to the labor market and to good jobs. Um, and so there's a, a, a good report from the Federal Reserve Community Affairs Division that comes out every year that sort of goes into that the story of yeah. student debt extending beyond the student and the debtor themselves. Marshall, have you seen any change from employers of not demanding sort of an increase in credentials? No, the opposite. I think it's 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 going on and on. I think you know employers know that they can um, they can get more credentialed workers for essentially the same or lower wage as they did in the past. And just briefly, have people conflated this current kind of student debt explosion with what were GI loans? In other words, saying they're kind of the same things? I beg your pardon. You know what? We're going to go to, I want to thank you very much for joining us, Marshall Steinbaum, Research Director, fellow Roosevelt Institute in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.